0: I wonder how many of you remember experiencing chicken pox as a child. Oh, many of you. It's not a pleasant experience, is it? You know, when I grew up, my mom strategized with all the other moms in the neighborhood uh, to expose all the kids to chicken pox at the same time. So when the first kid in the neighborhood came down with chicken pox, they put us in a room with that kid So we'd all get chicken pox, and everybody would go through it one time and be done with it. See, my mom understood it's better to experience chicken pox as a child than to wait and experience it as an adult. Now, I discovered the truth of that statement the hard way, because I didn't experience chicken pox as a child. Even though I was exposed half a dozen times to other kids. I didn't experience it until I became 40 years old. I never remember being more sick in my life. I mean, to look at my face, it looked like I had been mugged in a back dark alley somewhere. I had chicken pox up my nose, in my mouth, down my throat, in my stomach. They impacted my hormones. The endocrinologist said I had unusual high levels of estrogen in my system. I wondered if that meant I'd go through menopause at 50. I wasn't sure. I mean, it was miserable. You see, my mom was right. If you want to be a healthy adult, it's best to be exposed to a contagious case of chickenpox as a child. And the Apostle Paul knows that if you want to be a healthy Christ follower, it's best to be exposed to the transforming nature of Jesus Christ throughout your life, since He is the only one who can grow us and transform us. In fact, I love the way Lloyd Ogilvie puts it. He says, what we need in this life is a body of people whose lives demand an explanation. Now, I think that is what Paul has in mind as he comes to the close of this letter to the church at Thessalonica, I mean, to live in such a way exposed to the nature of Christ that others look at your life and demand to know why. So, So what are the ingredients of a life that demands an explanation? Well, if you turn with me to 1 Thessalonians 5, beginning in verse 16, we'll explore that together. You can turn in your Bibles or follow along on the screen. Paul begins this way, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ for you. Do not quench the spirit. Do not do not despise prophecies. Test all things. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now, as Paul comes to the end of this letter to this church in Thessalonica, he gives them a litany of commands. I mean, eight To be exact, I'm going to summarize them as six energizers of an attention-grabbing life. That's what I think he's describing. I want you to notice how the first three are linked with superlatives. Look at the words always, without ceasing, and everything. So how in the world do we rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all things? I think it's, it's kind of like... The dad who got his six-year-old son to help him check the blinker to make sure the light was working in his taillights. Son stood behind the car. The dad sat in the car. He turned the blinker on. He said, "Okay, son, is it working? The son said, it's on, dad. Oh, it's off. It's on. It's off. It's on. It's off. Now, isn't that the way we kind of come at these commands? I mean, take, for instance, rejoice always. It's on. It's off. It's on, it's off, it's on, it's off, it's off, it's off, it's off. Oh, there it is, it's on again. Isn't that the way we tend to approach things like that? So the question I have is, how do you, for instance, uh, rejoice always? Well, as we look at these first three commands, we need to recognize that the words Paul uses here don't describe something that is... Uh, continually occurring as much as it is continuously pervasive in our attitude toward God. Uh, let's dig in. You'll see what I mean. Look at the first command, the first energizer, if you will. He says, "Rejoice always." Now, when I think of joy, I think of kids. I mean, when my kids were small, they they had this amazing simplicity of joy. I mean, they would get excited. They would be joyful to go over to a friend's house. They would be joyful when I'd borrow a lawnmower from a neighbor. They were excited about me bringing home peanuts from the airlines. There was this simplicity of joy. I love the way G.K. Chesterton puts it. He says, because children have an abounding vitality, because they are in spirit fierce and free, therefore they want things repeated and unchanged. They'll always say, do it again. And the grown-up person does it again until they are nearly dead. For grown-up people are not strong enough to exalt in monotony. Then he goes on. But perhaps God is strong enough to exalt in monotony. It's possible that God says every morning, do it again to the sun, and every evening, do it again to the moon. It may not be an automatic necessity that makes all daisies alike. It may be that God makes every daisy separately, but has never got tired of making them. It may be that He has the eternal appetite of infancy, for we have sinned. And grown old, and our Heavenly Father is younger than we. You see what Chesterton's saying? He's saying God is probably the happiest being in the universe. And His desire is that His creation mirror His joy. In other words, joy really resides in the very heart of God. I love the way. C.S. Lewis puts it, he says, joy is the serious business of heaven. I don't I don't know about you, but I tend to live in two uh, streams. E- either I'm living or I'm kind of waiting to live. I mean, most of my life feels like it's in transition. I mean, I'm trying to get somewhere, waiting in line, waiting for a meeting to get over with. Or I'm trying to get a task accomplished. Worried about something that might happen. Or always doing something on my way to doing something else. Do you live like that? We need to be aware that joy is always experienced in the present. Not in the future. Did you know joy is a matter of perspective? In fact, one commentator said that if joylessness... Uh, is a sin, then it must be, um, if joy is a command, I'm sorry, if joy is a command, then joylessness must be a serious sin. In fact, it's probably the one sin most tolerated in the church. I mean, joyless people are not winsome. Joyless people are not fun to be around, are they? I love the story John Ortberg tells about the farmer who had a joyless neighbor. He decided to take his, his uh, joyless neighbor uh, uh, duck hunting with him. He wanted to impress him with his hunting dog because he had uh, the best hunting dog in the whole county. Uh, when they got to the blind, he showed his neighbor how his hunting dog just stayed perfectly still, would not even flinch a muscle as to scare the ducks. The neighbor wasn't impressed. He showed him how the the hunting dog could, um, uh, with his scent, smell the ducks a mile off. And, And then how he would wink his eye when the ducks would begin coming close. The neighbor was not impressed. Well, several ducks flew over the blind. The farmer took a shot. He got one of them. It hit the lake. The hunting dog jumped up ran across the top of the water of the lake, grabbed the duck, ran all the way back to the duck blind, didn't get wet at all. Deposited the duck there in the blind, and the farmer, with a smile on his face, says, what do you think of that? His neighbor said, your dog can't swim, can he? <laughs> you see, joy is a matter of perspective. Choosing to focus on the right Things will enhance your joy. Now, if joy is a matter of perspective, then we can lose our joy if we focus on the wrong things. In fact, I want to give you three things that will actually steal your joy in life. The first is comparison will steal your joy. Now, we're notorious to compare ourselves to other people, aren't we? The problem with comparison is there's always someone out there who's better than us more beautiful than us, more accomplished than us, I mean, smarter than us. Comparison will steal your joy. Do you remember what happened when Jesus told Peter about his death? Peter's first response was, well, what about him? And he pointed to John. And Jesus said, well, if I want him to remain till I come, what is that to you? In other words, quit comparing. Why? Because comparison will always steal your joy. So comparison can steal your joy. But did you know regret can steal your joy? I mean, you could call regret living in the past. I mean, instead of focusing in on the present, we focus on what we should have done. A decision maybe we should have made. How we should have handled this particular situation. A decision about Stocks that lost us money or maybe it's a choice that we made in marriage. I mean, focusing on what we should have done will always steal your joy. Joy is experienced in the present, not the past. So comparison, regret will steal your joy. A third is that circumstances can steal your joy. I mean, we find ourselves in the midst of painful circumstances and if you're like me all you can focus in on is the pain or the situation and if we begin doing that over and over again we begin living with the illusion that joy can only come when my circumstances change but true joy true joy is compatible even with pain in fact Some of the people that experience the greatest pain in life have been the best demonstrators of pure joy at times. I mean, true joy comes when we devote ourselves to something greater than our own personal happiness. True joy comes when you discipline yourself to see things from a biblical perspective, when we release our demandedness that our circumstances be different and at the same time yield ourselves to an all-loving, all-knowing, all-powerful heavenly Father. Now, the second energizer Paul gives us is going to help us do all that. Notice what he says second. We are to pray without ceasing. Now, you've got to remember that Paul is not talking about something that's continuously occurring, but is continually pervasive in our attitude toward God. Praying without ceasing doesn't mean that we're to always be praying, but like tuning the radio, we are to tune in to His frequency. In fact, I remember years ago, and Kids were home. Patty was homeschooling them. I called home one day and to talked to Patty and one of our sons answered the phone. I said, can I speak to mom? He said, yeah. And he went to get mom, but he got distracted with something playing Who knows what? And I waited and waited and I could hear him making truck noises on the floor of the kitchen. And then I could hear Patty coming downstairs and they were starting their homeschooling. And I was kind of enjoying listening in because Patty's a great teacher and I was listening to what she was saying, how she was engaging the kids, when she must have noticed somebody left the phone off the hook, because I'm listening and all of a sudden click, and there's no one on the other end. You know, that's a great picture of what Paul's talking about here. He's saying, leave the connection open. Don't hang up. So you begin your day connecting with God, talking to Him about your day. When you finish, leave the connection open. Don't hang up. Invite Him into the rest of your day. Be aware that He is there and He's willing to engage at any moment and He's listening. And He knows and sees what's going on. You have a cantankerous client, you've got to deal with it. Invite Him in on that appointment. You get a letter from a disgruntled person, ask Jesus to sit down and read it with you. You have more things to accomplish than you could possibly do, invite Jesus in to help you accomplish those things. And what I'm talking about is simply releasing your burden to Him and in exchange, He gives peace and wisdom in that process. Which leads to the third energizer. We are to give thanks in all things. One morning when we were living in Little Rock, I was taking my son Daniel to school. And we got into my car and I went to back out of the garage. But what I'd forgotten was that Patty had parked her van behind me and just to the right. And I turned the wheels a little too sharp, and I ended up scraping the whole side of her van with my car. You know the sound of bending metal? It's not pleasant. I just slumped over the steering wheel and began praying without ceasing. (laughs) Well, Daniel, who was in the car, threw the door open. Ran inside. I could hear him screaming, "Mom, mom! Dad wrecked your car! Dad wrecked your car!" Well, there's nothing I could do about it then. So Daniel and I got in my car and we headed on to McDonald's for breakfast. And I was a little distracted, to say the least. And at one point during our meal, I remember thinking, "Y'all yeah, hadn't talked to God about this." And I said, "Daniel, you mind if I just pause for a second and and pray about what happened back at the house?" He said, "Sure." So I just bowed my head and I just prayed out loud. I said, God, thank you that I'm going to have to spend a boatload of money to get Mom's car fixed. And I want you to know we love you. Thank you for being in control. Amen. And when I opened my eyes, Daniel had this shocked look on his face. I mean, he 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 listened to what I said. He was just absolutely shocked by it. Now, I want you to notice what Paul says here. Notice, he tells us that we're not to say, to, to thank God for all things, but in all things. It's a huge difference. We don't thank God for cancer. We don't thank God for our spouse passing away or the death of a loved one. But we do thank Him in those things. He has the ability to. To bring about something good. Something different. You see, when we thank Him in the low tides of life, sometimes He returns a depth of perspective. Maybe we didn't have before. Who knows? In fact, when Patty picked Daniel up from school that day, Daniel jumped in the car and the first thing words out of his mouth was, Mom, Mom, when Dad ran into your car and wrecked it, he didn't say a single bad word. He said... And not only that, but we went to McDonald's and he, he thanked God for that whole thing. You see, I had not meaning to, I left an impression. An impression that was far greater than the impression I left in the side of Patty's van. <laughs> and it changed Daniel's perspective on life. You see, you begin thanking God in all things, you'll live a life that demands an explanation. Now, those first three energizers are positive, but but the last three are prohibitive. Notice what he says next, don't quench the Spirit. Now, I want you to notice that this command Paul gives here implies that God's Spirit already is working. Our job is not to get in the way of what He's doing. I mean, you and I tend to go through life and we're either open to what the Spirit does or we're closed to what He does. And when we are closed, we limit the Spirit's power in our life. In fact, several years ago, God brought a situation to mind that I really needed to deal with. I had lied to a friend. In fact, a few years earlier, I was directing a boys' camp. And the owner of the camp came to my office and said, Doug, what I want to do is clear out this whole section of the barn And we're going to convert it to something else. Take everything that's over there and just take it down to the dump and we'll burn it later this week. So I directed several counselors to begin cleaning out the barn after a couple hours. One of them came back and he had a composite picture of the owner's fraternity. All the active picture. He said, what do you want me to do do with this? And I said, well, where was it? He said, well, it was in that section just back over behind some stuff. Now, I knew better. But I said, well, if it's... In that section, just take it down to the dump. Get rid of it. We'll burn it later. And in the back of my mind, I was thinking, well, I mean, he put it over there. He said, get rid of it. It'll be, I mean, it's his own fault. We're going to burn it. I was wrong. Shouldn't have done it. But it only got worse. Two weeks later, somebody was rummaging around the dump, and they dug out this half-burned composite of the fraternity that had the owner's picture on it. And they brought it to the owner's wife. She immediately came over and asked me if I knew anything about it. I lied. I said, No, I don't know anything about that. Now now I I, I felt bad about lying. And I can remember rationalizing it, thinking, well, it was his own fault. I mean, it was over there and and I have this oversensitive conscience and I just need you know, I just kinda of put it out of my mind. Well, a couple of years went by and the owner passed away. And I could not get out of my mind about how much his wife would enjoy probably having that composite. They had met at Georgia Tech when he was in that fraternity. And I knew at that point I had been limiting what the Spirit wanted to do in my life. And I knew I had to call her and seek forgiveness. But now it was going to be twice as hard. I mean, he had passed away. So I picked up the phone. I called her and I said, you know what I did? I lied. And then I I, I wasn't sensitive. I should have brought it over. And I was wrong. Will you forgive me? And of course she did. You see, when you allow the Spirit of God to work in your life, there is a warmth of love that ends up melding with humility. And the results are harmony in cooperation, and the outcome will be a life that demands an explanation. Now, fifth, Paul says, don't despise prophetic utterance. Now, you've got to remember, when this letter was written to the church at Thessalonica, they didn't have a New Testament. In fact, this was one of the first letters Paul wrote to the churches. And they also didn't have an Old Testament that they could look at. I mean, the Old Testament was on scrolls in the synagogue and was not readily available to anyone in the church at Thessalonica. And so when the first century church was planted, they planted it without the Scripture. So what God would do would give the gift of prophecy to certain godly people to deliver His message to that church because they didn't have the Scripture they could refer to. I mean, that may sound strange to you. Biblical scholar F. F. Bruce says that these New Testament prophets were declaring the mind of God in the power of God. In fact, in First or Second Peter 1:21, Peter tells us exactly how it was done. It says, for, pro- "For prophecy never came by the will of man, but by holy men of God, spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit." So. You had people who had this gift of prophecy. They could speak the mind of God through the power of the Spirit of God, which became the message that particular church needed to hear. Paul even talks about this in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20. He talks about it establishing the church. He says, when the church was established, it was built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Jesus Christ Himself being the cornerstone. So really what Paul is saying here to the church at Thessalonica is don't despise those who have the gift of prophecy. It is God's words coming to you as a church. Now since the completion of the New Testament... I mean, we have God's authoritative Word here that we refer to. I mean, there's no need for that kind of special revelation. Don't get me wrong, God does speak to hearts today, absolutely. But when a prophet would speak, it was considered the inerrant Word of God. And just like those in Paul's day, those in the church of Thessalonica, were to obey the inerrant Word of a prophet... We get to obey the inerrant authoritative Word of God through the Bible. But we do have to be careful. And in fact, the the next three commands imply exactly that. You could summarize them in one statement. Be discerning. Be discerning. It, It seems that this church at Thessalonica had discounted the prophet's message because of so many false prophets of that day. And so Paul advises them here, first of all, don't despise prophetic utterance. Secondly, he says, I want you to be discerning how by testing everything carefully. And then he goes on to say, determine what's good and what's bad and hold fast to what is good. I mean, for us today, that means that we need to test everything by what the Scripture says. I mean, don't take what someone says at face value. The Bible is there for you to study and do to determine if it agrees with Scripture. And if it does, after studying it, you determine it's biblical, then obey it. Do what it says. Now, I want you to notice, he also says abstain from every form of evil. That word form means the appearance. Uh, he's not saying abstain just from evil things. It's way beyond that. He's saying abstain from even the appearance. of evil things and that makes sense if you want a life that demands an explanation now having given us six energizers of an attention grabbing life Paul concludes by describing three catalysts three catalysts of a deeply significant life look at verse 23 Now may the God of peace Himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus. He who calls you is faithful, so also will do it. Now, as He ends this letter, He gives this church a blessing of sorts by pointing to the only one that can help them carry out those six energizers. It's God who is faithful. Notice he requests that the God of peace do two things. First of all, that he sanctify us, and secondly, that he preserve us. Now, when, when I see that word sanctify, I immediately think of my friend who played middle linebacker for the Dallas Cowboys. He told me that the first day in, in camp as a rookie, that they had uh, the rookie sit at one set of tables for, for meals, and all the veterans sat at another set of tables for meals. And that particular day, they happened to serve fried chicken. He said the biggest linebacker on the Cowboys team wanted to intimidate the new rookies, so he got up from the table, he walks over to the rookie table, he kind of puts his hands down on it, he looks all the rookies in the eye, just stares them down. Then he looks at that fried chicken, and he said that one's mine, that one's mine, that one's mine, that one's mine. You see what he's doing? He was sanctifying it. The word sanctify means set apart. He was setting apart the, the, all that chicken for his use, for his consumption. That's what the word sanctify means. But my friend also said that, the scrawniest rookie at the table stood up. He looked that big linebacker in the eye and he said, you can have it, you can have it, you can have it, you can have it. You see what Paul is saying here, it's as if he has taken the finger of his spirit and touched every life in here saying that one's mine. That one's mine. That one's mine. That one's mine. mine. He is saying, I've set you apart for my use, but to be different. Now, now it's true that there is a positional sense to sanctification. God has set us apart, but there's also a practical sense to sanctification. We have to make ourselves available. And when we do, He will grow us, He'll mature us, I mean... I mean, notice what he says here. He says, He who is who calls you is faithful, who also will do it. So having focused on the God who is faithful, he draws attention to the second catalyst, friends who are loyal. Look at verse 25. Brethren, pray for us. Greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. I charge you by the Lord that this epistle be read to all the holy brethren. The grace, of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. And notice first Paul requests prayer for himself, but it's that second statement that intrigues us, doesn't it? I mean, greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. What is that? Well, it was a standard greeting of that day. In fact, it's not strange even today. You you see it in the Middle East where two dignitaries will greet each other. They'll give each other a little kiss on the cheek. Now, in Paul's day, it was a greeting for men with men and women with women. I mean, so I can say with a clear conscience, guys, do not kiss my wife. Okay? It's men with men, women with women. And then he he mentions the final catalyst. It has to do with grace. Grace that is lasting. You know, two months ago when we began the study of the book of 1 Thessalonians, we began with grace. And isn't it interesting now He ends with grace? There's probably no better word to describe what God is like than the word of grace. Because that's exactly what God extends to us. I mean, grace is always undeserved and it's freely given. And, and the grace that God extends to us, it's immeasurable. It's overflowing. It's freely bestowed. Not because of what we have done, but because what Christ has done already done for us. And people who understand the grace of God end up living lives that demand an explanation. Because people who understand the grace of God readily extend it to others. And that, in essence, is a life of a contagious Christ follower. You know, to help us with uh, the things we've learned from the, the book of 1 Thessalonians and uh, to help us prepare for Easter. We've prepared that little guide that I had up here somewhere, but I have lost it. But you've got one in your hand. There it is. Uh, we would love you to, to, to take this and use it over the next six weeks, uh, not just to implement with the kind of things that you're learning from 1 Thessalonians, but to prepare yourself for Easter. I hope you'll find it helpful. Let me close us in prayer. Father, thank You. Thank You for all that You've done in our lives. Uh, Thank You for these commands. Would You help us focus in on one this week that we want to begin implementing, whether it's thanks in all things or whatever it might be. And would You energize us through Your Spirit to engage at that level throughout this week. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You know, if this is your first time here at Horizon and you've got questions about what's going on here, we would love to chat with you. I want to invite you to stop by the hearth room, third door on the left as you leave. And we look forward to seeing you next week. Thanks for coming.